Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Samantha, it's good, so good to be back with you. I was out uh, last week. I uh, got to get away with uh, my wife's family on a little uh, little short trip and uh, enjoyed uh, that a whole lot. And we had a great time spending time with them. And I'm thankful for Kenny, uh, our associate pastor, and, and his willingness to preach last week. Um, I was uh, worshiping along with you guys at a barbecue place um, and, uh, in Pigeon Forge. It was an hour later there, don't judge me, for eating barbecue so early. Um, but I'm thankful that even even when I have to be gone, that the Word of God will still be preached with accuracy and passion. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm so thankful for that. Uh, so <clears throat> this week we kick off our season of Advent. And uh, if you're not familiar with what that is, I just want to catch you up a little bit. It's a way to celebrate the coming of Christmas in a way that puts all the emphasis on the story of Scripture and puts Jesus right at the very center of it to help us keep our eyes fixed on that and not all the other things that come along with Christmas. Um, it's been practiced for almost as long as Christianity has existed itself. And so uh, Advent is a big deal. It starts four Sundays before Christmas Day. So that is today. You can do that math later. Uh, so each week, with the exception of today, we're going to be lighting a candle along with millions of other Christians. Every single week we'll be coming together to light a, a different candle. Um, we decorate for Christmas this afternoon at 3.30 if you'd like to come back and be a part of that. So we don't have our Advent stuff set up yet. We'll work on that for next year. But um, but we, we will be lighting candles uh, each week um, to kind of, uh, again, with millions of Christians around the world as we count down to Christ's original coming to the earth as a baby Jesus um, in Bethlehem. Um, but the word Advent, if you're not familiar, the word Advent comes from the word meaning arrival or coming. And so during Advent, what we want to do is we want to remember how intense the waiting was for the world. If, it's so hard for us to do on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection. But we want to remember what was going on in the world before Jesus was born. For generations, they had been waiting on the coming one of God. And in Jesus, he had finally come. That's going to be the main focus of our, our kickoff message this week. But we also use the Advent season, as Patrick prayed, to look forward to Jesus' second coming. Uh, we're in a new season of waiting, right, that is pretty similar to the one before us. And we want to allow that waiting to stir us to excitement and obedience without allowing ourselves to wind up in anxiety or fear or complacency as we wait. So we're going to be looking at four key themes over the next four weeks, hope, peace, joy, and love. And so this, mo- this morning, our, our theme is hope. So turning Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to be in just a minute. Give you a second. This first verse of the whole New Testament, Matthew 1, 1, this first verse so perfectly ties the two Testaments together and puts Jesus right at the center of all of it. So we're going to walk through just this one verse today, look at, and hopefully help you see Jesus as the one who brings hope uh, to God's people. So I'm going to read Matthew 1, 1 from, uh, from the word of the Lord, and then I will pray, and then we'll come back and talk. Uh, the word of the Lord says this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Father God, we thank you for your word, God, and even simple introductory Verses like this, God, that we can breeze over. God, I pray that today this verse would come alive, God, and we would see the hyperlinks that are in this passage and, God, what they mean for us today and, God, what they meant to so, so many countless people before Jesus was born. And, uh, God, we pray that you would open our eyes to your text today. God, uh, uh, teach us to know who you are, 
who Christ is and, and, and be with us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. <clears throat> Amen. So when you think about the word hope, what images come to your mind? How do we use that word today? Where do we hear the word hope? In what context? Tell me. Scare, I know it's scary to ask an open-ended question. Uh, hope for the future? Yeah, some sort of future. A sickness? Hope you get better. That's one I hear. Anybody else? What's that say? I hope you get home safe. That's right. Drive safely. <laughs> As if you were going to choose not to. Hey, so I, I think it's Christmas time. I can't help but think about my kids who hope they get a lot of things. Uh, little do they know, it's that rarely do they get everything they want, right? But we have a lot of hopes. Hope oftentimes is what we think about. We think about uh, job offers. We think about presents. We think about health stuff. We think about the future. And though some of those are t- maybe tied into some of this, but the word hope, we use it in a lot of ways, but biblically it's a very clear picture. And it's, the, it's, it's tied to the idea of waiting. Hope is tied to the idea of waiting. And that's why we typically use the word hope to kick off our season of Advent. And go nerdy for just a second. Uh, we're going to talk about two Hebrew words for the word hope. So in the Old Testament that was originally written mostly in Hebrew, there's two words in the whole thing uh, that, that really center on this word hope. And I'm a little stopped up, and y'all can hear that, and it's gross, I know, but they actually help you speak in Hebrew. You'll see in a moment, okay? Um, so there's two words. Uh, uh, two words. The first one is yachal. See how it helps? And chava. Okay, those two words. And so, uh, yakal is actually, um, it, it means, it simply means to wait for. It's the word that gets translated hope in our Bible. It's what, it's what is used to describe Noah when Noah's on the ark and he's waiting for the flood, for the floods to go down, the floods to recede. He's on, he's yakaling on the ark, right? And so here, but here's, have y'all seen the movie Noah? Anybody? Like the movie from a few years ago? Okay, so I watched it this week. And uh, really interesting movie, like really kept me in. Really interesting, very unbiblical, but very, very interesting movie. Um, if they just renamed, like if he wasn't named Noah, it would have been a pretty cool story, but all I could see were the holes. But, um, but this, so Noah, Noah had to yachal. Um, the other word is the word kava, kava. And it's a very similar word. It comes from the word cord, which is the word hav. Okay? And when you pull a cord tightly, What's built up on that cord? Tension, right? As you pull a kav, tension is built up, and that is kava. And so that's the image that's going on behind this word hope, this waiting. Tension continuing to build until it pops or until you stop pulling. That tension is the word hava. Now, uh, I told you that same thing two years ago. If you've been here a while, you've been here with us for a while, I told you that same thing. So I want to put a different image on your mind. The top of my ear is itching. I'm not in my ear. I'm on top of my ear. It's just itching. I'm sorry. Um, I want to put a different image in your mind. Uh, my wife hates the popping of balloons. You want to get on my wife's bad side, you want her to almost outright hate you. Pop a balloon around her. Just do it. And the one thing my wife hates more than popping a balloon is to put a balloon down in front of her and then just stand on it. Don't pop it all the way. Just slowly put the weight of your foot onto that balloon as the balloon begins to spread out. Among the, some of y'all are getting anxious just hearing about it. My wife is, she's, she's scratching over here. Um, 
But what's happening in that balloon? The balloon, so there's air in the balloon, and as you put pressure on it, that air is forcing into smaller area, and it's pushing against the sides of that balloon. And what's happening is the balloon begins to stretch. That latex begins to give, and at some point, it can't give anymore, and it pops. And that tension is relieved, and everyone goes, ah, and screams. Now, I also, not only does my wife hate balloons, I also have a six-year-old boy who loves popping balloons. And I don't know if it's tied to the fact that my wife hates them so much, but it very well may be because six-year-old boys are crazy. Um, but when you, that's what happens when you stand on a balloon. Uh, there's this tension. There's this tension within the balloon, and there's this tension that all of us feel, our anxiety getting higher as we're waiting for it to pop. This is what was going on at the time of Jesus' birth. And so often we, we're Christians. Because we're Christians, we naturally think of the story beginning with Jesus. Like we always think about, and we, we know that there was stuff that happened before Jesus was born, but we often like cram it into this little section in our brain, and we think of it as a really small period of time. But the period of time that creation had been waiting for the Savior's coming, church was a long time. A long time. In Matthew 1.1, is this great reminder of how long that period was because Matthew uses three words and phrases to describe Jesus and each one of them is this hyperlink that points back to the Old Testament. It's this 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 uh, this beautiful picture of how Jesus relieved attention for God's people that had been in existence for a long time. And so the first one we're going to talk about is one we actually talked about a couple of weeks ago in another series, but, but we'll spend some more time on it today. Um, Jesus as Christ. That's what the first thing Matthew says is that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is most certainly not his last name, nor is it just a nickname for Jesus. It's a very intense and important name that was talked about for generations in the Jewish family. I told you guys two weeks ago, Christ is the Greek word for the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah, anointed one. So when Jesus' followers, and even we today, when we call Jesus Christ, we are claiming something very unique about him. It's not just his last name. We are saying something very particular about him. Messiah is used multiple times in the Old Testament. It means anointed one of God. It's used to speak of particular people in the Old Testament. However, by the time of Jesus' birth, by the time of the, 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 when we shift from B.C. to A.D., you know what I'm talking about, right? The word Messiah had come to be the name of the one that God had promised to send over and over again in the scriptures. And there are several passages that point to this coming Messiah, this anointed one of God who's going to do something awesome in the world. But I want, I don't want to look at all of those, but I want to look at the origin passage first. And we've got to go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. If you're familiar with Genesis 1, the author describes God creating the universe. And we see creation broken down over six days. In the first three days, we see God creating these spaces. And then in the second three days, we see God filling these spaces with life, including humans. And then as Genesis 2 begins, we shift into day 7, and we see that God has a specific relationship with these first humans who we later call Adam and Eve. We see God's love for them and his, and, and his desire for them to obey him. And that happens all in chapter 2, this relationship. We see that. And then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobey the only rule we know God gave them not to break. To eat from a particular tree that God calls the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
If you don't know how that went down, Eve had a conversation with a snake. Never a good way to start a conversation. Um, The serpent convinced her that God didn't want what was best for her, that he was holding out on her, keeping her from true happiness and joy. And so she takes the very fruit that God had told her not to eat, and she gave it to her husband Adam as well. Now, in our house, if the world came undone, every time my kids did something I didn't want them to do, we'd be off our axis. Okay, we'd be doing it anyway. So we can oftentimes think about all the sin in our own lives and the sin we see around the world. We can downplay this first sin. But it is clear as you are reading the story, as you're reading through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when you get to 3, you sense that things begin to come undone. This overreach by humanity has wrecked things. Adam and Eve, we find them hiding from God and honestly, in one sense, hiding from one another. God comes looking for them. Help When he finds them, he helps them see what this seemingly simple sin has brought into the world. He addresses both of them particularly, and then he addresses the serpent. Now, the serpent is this image of the evil one, of Satan, of the devil, of all the names that are used for, for this evil one in the Bible. He's the one who desires now and from the very beginning to lead humanity astray. And God tells him this after eating the fruit. After Adam and Eve eat the fruit, he addresses Adam and Eve, and then he addresses the serpent this way. Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now this is the first place we see God promise to send someone to right the wrongs that were brought into the world by sin. It's the first moment. This is the origin story of the Messiah. Now, say amen if you testify if this is true. Is there hostility between humanity and Satan? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, like we all see that, right? That's clear. But God begins to speak of the offspring of the woman. He said, your offspring, Eve. A coming child. And what does he say will, they will do? Strike the head of the serpent. Now, all of you snake haters, we say amen to that. We say crush the fire out of those heads. Destroy them, right? But, that, but there's more going on here than, boy, do we hate snakes as human beings. There's more going on here. Because what this is, is a, it's an overthrow of the evil one. It's a restoration of the good things that sin marred. This is exciting news to hear. God is saying, one day I'm going to send someone to do what you couldn't do or you wouldn't do. And he's going to crush the head of the one that you were deceived by. And he's going to take away all the things that you allowed in here because of your sin. You see, this snake crusher was an exciting thing for God's people to hear about. As it's passed down from generation to generation, we know it made it all the way to Moses, which was a long way after as Moses begins to write these first five books of the Bible, generations later. Because you see, without this comment from God, without Genesis 3.15, think of the story of the fall of humanity. Have you ever thought about that before? That hit me this week. God called Adam and Eve to be perfect human beings, to live in His presence and obey Him fully, and they disobeyed Him, and He kicked them out of His garden and out of His presence. That's a sad story. Right? 
He just removed him from his presence. That's it. At best, this is a try-harder moral tale. Don't be like Adam and Eve. Love God. That's all that is. Without Genesis 3.15, but with Genesis 3.15, it gives us hope. Amen? This Genesis 3 comment. You messed this whole thing up. What God intended has been ruined by our sin, but he's going to fix it. One day, right? Genesis 3.15, what does it do? It creates tension in the rope. For generations, God's people are waiting. They're waiting. One day, one day, kava, kava, kava. And how many years passed between Adam and Eve to Jesus' birth? A lot. That's scientifically speaking. A lot. And as that time passed, Kavah was building. But it was finally relieved in Jesus. There's no doubt in Matthew's mind that when he says that Jesus is the Christ, that all of this is what's flooding his mind. Jesus is this snake crusher that you've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. But not only does he call him the Christ, he also calls him the Son of God. I mean, the son of David. Can't read. He also calls him the son of David. You see that right after. Just genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, if you look up when David was born, you're going to find a lot of different answers because uh, we didn't have a great... Uh, we didn't have, a, lot, <laughs> have a, a great way to keep track of a lot of things, but uh, most historians would put, would put David's birth around 1035 B.C. Around 1035 B.C. Now, the Israel that David was born into was very different from the one Jesus was born into. By this point, uh, by the point of uh, David, by, by David's birth, the hundreds of thousands of descendants of Jacob who had left Egypt as slaves with, as Moses led them out have now conquered the land that God had promised to them generations earlier, and they're being viewed by the nations around them as a formidable nation-state. And they viewed God as their king and ruler for years, but then they get a wild idea to appoint a king over them so they can be like the other nations. And Saul is the first king of Israel, and he, he's, he's not a great spiritual leader, to say the least, and he abandons the truth of God quite often. And it's under Saul's reign that David is born. So think about what's going on. David, who's a shepherd and a musician, a man who loved God, at some point early in his life, probably between 10 and 12-ish, is anointed as the next king of Israel and eventually becomes king. And during David's reign, everything thrives. David, for the most part, keeps God's will before the nation. And when you, if you think about it, if you're there, like the people, the people clearly begin to look at David. Is this the one? Is this the guy that God promised? Is this the one that... Is gonna is gonna crush the head of the serpent. He he's 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 a great leader. But of course, David lets them know through several mistakes that he's not the one to be watching for. <coughs> but it starts to bother David. One of my one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. Nah, that's not true. It's a weird one though. It starts to bother David that he has a big palace, yet God dwells in a tent. And so he actually wants to, he wants to build God a house, which is just, it's a strange thing to say. But 
he 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 wants uh, the the tent was necessary. There's this big mobile tent that the Bible calls a tabernacle. There's this big mobile tent that as they were moving from place to place, it was God's presence. That God's presence dwelt there. And, but now they're established. They're in. They've they've set up Jerusalem as as their capital. Like this this is becoming more of a nation now. And David feels the time may be right to build a temple for God, or a house as he called it. Instead of just doing it. Um, without asking God, he sends Nathan, a prophet and a friend, to ask the Lord. Now, you can read God's answer to this in Second Samuel 7. It's a long answer. But to sum it up, God says, essentially, do you think I need a house? Like brick and mortar is going to make me stronger. It's going to give me more power. Do you think I need for you to build me a house? Look at all I've done while being in y'all's little mobile tent. Now, that's kind of God's answer. But then he gets to this. He ends with this as directed at David. Listen to these words. Second Samuel seven, twelve through sixteen. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. A lot going on, to say the least. But what happens over time is that this declaration to David gets combined with the previous statements about a a coming anointed one. Because what we see, David's actual son, Solomon, is the one who builds a house for God's name. And God certainly does discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. And some of this becomes true in Solomon. However, the forever kingdom, this, this, this throne that will never end, does not occur. In fact, Solomon dies and his son steps on the throne and the kingdom is divided and it gets a mess. You see, this declaration of, of, a, of, a, of a king who will reign forever gets combined with all these previous statements about a coming anointed one. Not only will God send a snake crusher, but this snake crusher is going to be a great and mighty king who will establish Israel as a nation forever. That's what's going on in the hearts and minds of God's people. And the term son of David becomes the measuring stick for a king. When you read First and Second Kings, Second Kings especially, if they are a good king, they're often referred to as a son of David or like their father David. And what's going on is the anticipation starts to build. As you have a good king, somebody who does good things and recenters the nation on God, everybody starts to ask, is this the guy? Is this the guy? They're getting excited. Everybody's getting excited. Will they be the snake crusher? Will they restore the kingdom to its previous clout? Is this the Messiah? But each one of them dies before anything is established to fulfill this prophecy. So it continues to build. Can you imagine? King after king. And God's people are waiting on God. God, where's the snake crusher? Where's the king? Where's the forever kingdom? And then the Assyrians and Babylonians come in and remove Israel from their place. And the nation of Israel completely and totally falls. They don't even have a king anymore. And the tension, imagine how much tighter the tension on the cord gets. David's family line. They continue to trace David's family line for generations. Why? Because a descendant of David 
is going to establish a forever kingdom for a thousand years, church. For 1,000 years, the tension builds from David all the way to Jesus. The tension is building. Everyone's waiting with anticipation. And then a descendant of David is born in the same city that David was born, Bethlehem. Listen to what's said of this baby boy. Luke 2, verses 8 through 11. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. You see in this, in the city of David, the Messiah is born. This is intense. The kavah that you have been experiencing, this tension, this waiting, is being relieved in Jesus' birth. The Messiah is here. The forever king is here. The snake crusher is here. This is why Paul would say of Jesus later in Ephesians 1, 20-21, that God exercised this power in Christ by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What does that sound like? It sounds like a forever throne, a forever kingdom. Jesus is now sitting on a forever throne above all other rulers. It's not what Israel had thought it would be, but it is a full fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. This is the Jesus is the hope because He is the Son of David. Not only is He the snake-crushing Messiah, Christ, but He's also the Son of David, the eternal King. But Matthew goes on. He doesn't just say Christ. He doesn't just say Son of David. He also says Son of Abraham. Son of Abraham. Now, the Israelites, even today, trace their lineage back to Abraham. And if you don't know Abraham, um, I, I would, man, that's some homework between now and Christmas. Great stuff for you to read. Um, Abraham, we get introduced to him in Genesis chapter 12, pretty early in the story. And uh, he's known by Abram then. But God calls him to begin following him and obeying him. And this is what the Word of the Lord says, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, it seems very much like Abraham could be this snake crusher. God's going to use him to reverse some of the brokenness brought by sin. He's going to be a, a blessing to all the nations. And Abraham absolutely, without a doubt, had little idea what God was talking about here. This was a big promise that sounded great, but Abraham wouldn't see most of this fulfilled during his lifetime. So God gives him clarity later in life in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18. He says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. God helps Abraham see it wasn't so much about using Abraham himself, but using his descendants to impact the world. His family would bring healing to the whole world in some way. Now, again, 
the nation of Israel traced they, the Israelites. They track their uh, their lineage all the way back to Abraham, and they would take this even today. They take this calling to heart, and they view much of what they do and what they did all throughout the biblical history as a fulfillment of God's promise to them as sons of Abraham. But they always seemed to feel like there was more God wanted to do with them. They kept waiting for a time in the future in which God would really bring Genesis twenty two eighteen and Genesis twelve one through three to fruition. Who's going to be the snake crusher, the son of David, who will lead God's people to be a blessing to all nations in some way? The tension is building from all three of these moments. And from this point, actually David comes after this moment, but I took him in order of how Matthew said him. By the time David comes on, like it, it seems like maybe he's the one, but it's, it's still left hanging. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. And he fulfills this promise to Abraham in a really intense way that no one ever had or could because Jesus truly was the blessing to all peoples on the earth. Through his death and resurrection, people can be restored to the true image of God that was marred through sin. They can live lives free from the heaviness and darkness of sin. And it doesn't matter if you're an Israelite. The blessing is open to all the peoples of the earth. That's true of today. Depending on how you classify a people group, there's somewhere between 9,800 and 24,000. I know that's a big (laughs) gap, but it depends on how you classify a people group. That's how many there are, 9,800 to 24,000 people groups in the world. And all of them are living in some state of tension because of their recognition of sin in the world. Listen, church, they're living in a state of chava. And Jesus is the relief for that. Matthew says, this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I can remember being a kid. The first book I read through that I remember was Matthew because I had a little NIV Bible, and in the back there was a Bible reading plan. And I didn't want to start in the Old Testament because I knew that could get hairy. So I went to this New Testament plan, and... First chapter, first section I had to read was from Matthew 1 1. I still got that Bible in my office. Still had the little check marks in all the little boxes as it went down. No telling how many times I read over Matthew 1 1 and viewed it as an introduction to a really boring genealogy. Uh, this guy had this baby and 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 this person had this baby. On and on and on. Just get to the good stuff. It's what I thought. But now, what I hope you, what I know I see and what I hope you now see is that this is not just a simple statement that Matthew makes here. To say that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew is making a declaration that is huge. Most scholars believe Matthew was speaking to a group of people who were still waiting. Matthew's probably writing to Jewish Christians and to Jews who have yet to convert to Christianity and begin to follow Jesus. And so they're in this state of kavah for something that had already been relieved, church. Do you see this? They're, they're waiting on something that has already been relieved. Jesus had already come and they had missed it. The snake-crushing Messiah, the eternal King, Son of David, the international blessing, Son of Abraham, had come and gone and they missed it. And Matthew wanted them to know that the wait was over. Jesus was the fulfillment. Matthew spends the rest of his account through chapter 28 trying to convince them that Jesus is this fulfillment. But as you read through Matthew's account, 
You also run into Matthew 24. What Matthew's doing there is he's helping his readers see that though this one this one period of kavah, this one period of waiting has ended at Jesus, a new one has just begun. And it's this one that you and I to live in now. If we see that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament things, and that we believe in him now as Savior and Lord, then what has to be true is that we are now waiting on him again to return. Matthew 24 talks about a period of time that for general purposes we're going to label his second coming. There's a lot more going on here. You can send emails to Kenny at lindsayland.org. He'll answer them all. Uh, There's a lot going on in Matthew 24 that we're not focusing on, but the part that speaks about the hope that I want to get to begins in verse 36. Now concerning that day and hour, the, the day and hour of Christ's return, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Now I got a really good image in my mind of what that day looked like because of a terribly unbiblical movie. But what they did do was talk about how horrendous it would be to be on the ark and see the judgment of God poured out on the rest of creation. That's what's going on. Jesus compares this future day of his return to the time of Noah, a time of judgment that will come out of nowhere to, mo- to all of us. He says in Matthew 24, 40 through 41, two men are going to be in the field, one's going to be taken, one's left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill, one's going to be taken, one will be left. You see, what Jesus is helping us see is it's different in Noah's day. It wasn't about location. It wasn't about, hey, where's the ark at this time? It wasn't about finding the ark and getting on it. It's a spiritual location. If you were in Noah's ark, you were safe. But this salvation that is coming at Christ's second coming is is spiritually found, not geographically found. So much so that two people could be walking together and one experience salvation and the other not. And listen to this kavah talk that happens in verse 42. Jesus is speaking here. He begins, Therefore, because no one knows the hour, because it's going to be, this is how it's going to look, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready. Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour where you do not expect. You see in this? Jesus is helping his disciples see, and I think he's helping us today see, that the tension that we experience, this hope that we're longing for, is hard to balance. You see, there's a natural tendency in the human heart to loosen our focus as we wait, is it not? When you have to wait for a table at a restaurant because you're at the beach with 14 million other people. Just carry a grill and cook, y'all. That's so much better. But anyway, you're waiting for a table at a restaurant. 
I'll give you another example. We were in D.C. when I was a kid. Uh, we went, it was probably almost 30 years ago. My sister was in the band, so we got to go and experience D.C. Um, first time I ever got to go and be there. And while we were there, someone broke into our vehicle and took my mom's wallet, all of her cards, everything. Now, what I remember is that for a while after that, my mom was pretty cautious about her stuff, right? Hey, did you like the car? Hey, let me make sure I get my purse out. Maybe, like it was always a thing. I don't know this to be true. I could call her today. She's going to watch this later on live stream. She can correct me. Sometime this week, my, my mom has probably left her car unlocked. She's probably left her purse in her car unlocked. Why? Because the period of time in which her perspective changed of the world, a lot of time has passed. And over that period of time, her focus on what that meant to her has waned. We find ourselves here. This is what's going on. Jesus is helping us see, I think he's helping his disciples and us see that there is a right way to wait. There's a right way to hope. There's a right way to experience the kavah of his return. And it's an eager expectation. When we look forward to Jesus' return, we should live daily for him, think often of him, live lives that are focused on his work and ministry in us and through us. But is that true of most people today? I don't know. But I would say, I know for my own life, oftentimes I find myself going, it's been 2,000. What if it's 2,000 more? I can't keep doing this. I'm going to loosen my guard. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to begin to live for myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to make different decisions because I've got time. Jesus' words to his disciples are the same today. Because you don't know when I'm coming, be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So let me ask you, how are you reacting to the kavah we're experiencing? How is your hope? Are you eager? Are you living every day as if tomorrow, today or tomorrow may be your last? Or has the waiting led you to be content, lazy, lacking focus? You see the importance of wrestling with this church? Like this is really important for us to think about. Because when I have to wait on a table, it's one of two responses, right? I can either let the taste of that ribeye sandwich that I want to get, that Philly cheesesteak sandwich, that fried shrimp po' boy. I can let, you're getting hungry now. I can let, you're hanging on every word now. I've got you. I can let that taste, that coming taste, drive me to be patient or I can throw my hands up and bail on it all together. Church, this is what we face. This is what we face. Real people are seeing this moment of waiting on Christ's return and some of them are getting impatient and bailing. May it not be said of those who call Lindsay Lane East home. I want to give you some time to think on this really important question. 
We're going to sing one more song. And during this song, if you need to come up here and pray at the altar before your church family about a lack of focus for yourself or for other people in your life, you have someone that you love that that doesn't know Christ, you want to come pray for them right here. You can pray right where you are. Or maybe you're like me and you just want to worship God through song like you haven't in a while because hopefully today you've been reminded that God sent Jesus to change the world for us. Today you've got that opportunity to worship. If you've never trusted in the name of Jesus, I need to tell you there is a day coming when that chance will be lost. Either at your death or at Jesus' second coming, your chance to follow Jesus will be over. And I don't know how long that gives you. If I had a TV show, maybe I could point to it. Like televangelists are trying to tell you. I don't know because the Bible says we don't know when this time will be. But why wait? I want to be at the back during this last song. If you need to talk to me about anything, I want to, I want to talk with you and pray with you. God, I thank you so much. God, for just the way that you uh, you are with us and you are for us. And uh, God, that even though we are the ones that messed everything up, God, not you, we messed this up, God. You still proactively saw fit to redeem us from our brokenness by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us, by calling us to salvation, by saving us through Jesus' blood, by, by raising us up to new life through Jesus' resurrection and allowing us to grow more into the image of Christ every day. That's your, that's your doing, God. And we are so thankful. And God, I pray that as we wait on Christ's second coming, God, that again, God, the, the people under other steeples, God, I don't, I don't get a chance to speak into them, but God, for the people that sit under this place, God, who call Lindsay Lane East home, who are Lindsay Lane East, God, I pray that we would be a people who, who, uh, who don't get impatient, God, but that our hope is finally and fully secured in Jesus Christ. And as we wait, we only get more eager, God, not more complacent. God, help me to lead out in that. Help us respond to you in the way we need to. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and sing.